Chapter 8 is before us this afternoon. Please follow as I read. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder, sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. The lamb broke the seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Silence. Deathly silence. No sound of thundering four apocalyptic horsemen. No sound of crashing mountains answering calls of rulers to fall on them and cover them. No sound of earthquakes trembling or volcano shaking or raging tsunami. No sound of starvation cries, cries of famine, cries of disease and plague. Not even any sounds from the hellish lake of fire. Everything dead still after the seventh seal is unsealed. All hushed. All speechless. All hymnless. No hymns sounding. All soundless. Heaven perfectly still, voiceless, 
motionless, soundless. Even the multitude of redeemed martyrs and non-martyrs, not a sound, not a peep, nothing but quiet. Here is the conclusion of the final judgment of the sixth seal. Awed silence, reverent soundlessness, even the silence of perfect gratitude. There was silence in heaven. Heaven responds to the chaos and terror of God's last judgment in chapter 6, verses 12 to 17. Heaven responds with awed silence. God is in his holy temple. Let even all the heavenly host and the redeemed of the Lord Jesus keep silence. Habakkuk expressed that that hope before the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Now here is the eschatological temple echoing the same call to reverent awe and silence in the presence of the mighty Lord God. Every mouth closed in the presence of the aftermath of God's wrath and justice. It reminds you of Job. When God appears to him out of the whirlwind in chapter 38 of the book of Job, and Job (coughs) prostrates himself before God and lays his hand over his mouth, he shuts his mouth in the fury of God's manifestation to himself, to him. And he makes that famous statement, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now I see you face to face and I repent in dust and ashes. I shut my mouth in the presence of such majesty. In Romans 3.19, when the Apostle Paul says, let every mouth be shut as a result of the whole world being accountable to God. There's the eschatological aspect of the sinner's situation, his condition before God. Let him shut his mouth as a result of being accountable to Almighty God. The silence here is reverent in its awe. The silence here is worshipful in its devotion. And the silence here is thankful in being spared what has just fallen upon the ungodly in the final judgment. There are a number of approaches to this silence, but all of them come back to the fact that heaven is reacting. The glorified souls, and at this point, glorified resurrection body souls, are reacting to the end of the cosmos, to the end of God's judgment upon the wicked cosmos. They are reacting with the only expression which is appropriate. Shut your mouth in the presence of such mighty displays of power and judgment. 
also such mighty displays of grace and mercy, which have spared us the wrath to come. And yet our sevenfold pattern returns. We've had seven churches, seven letters of Asia Minor. We have seven seals. We just completed the seventh seal. Now, in this chapter, we have seven angels with seven trumpets. Patterns of sevenfold repetition. This pattern continues throughout the book. The patterns of sevenfold repetition suggests a principle of interpretation. A repetitive paradigm repetitively interpreting itself. A repetitive paradigm repetitively interpreting itself. We say we interpret scripture by other scriptures. Well, here is this book interpreting itself by other patterns of seven. Seven seals interpreting seven trumpets here, interpreting seven seals there. So as we move through the book and we have these advancing sevens, seven bowls, etc., they are interpreting themselves. They're expressing themselves repetitively. The pattern remains the same. Sevenfold something. Sevenfold something. The image or the symbol varies from a seal to a trumpet to an angel to a bowl, etc. But our hermeneutic, and hermeneutic means principle of interpretation, our hermeneutic or principle of interpretation remains the same. We interpret the sevenfold patterns repetitively. Now that doesn't mean that there's not something unique to them, and we'll see that this afternoon, whether we emphasize something that's unique in this uh, <coughs> initial display of the seven trumpets. But nonetheless, <coughs> the sevenfold repetition is a repetition of thematic imagery, symbolic vision. It's pattern which is going over and over again. In other words, to emphasize to the audience that's reading this book this, <coughs> the certainty and the uh, sovereignty of God in his display of his grace and mercy as well as his justice and wrath. Now, <coughs> before we take a look at the specifics of this chapter, <coughs> we must deal with the other angel of verse 3. Another angel came and stood before the altar. And we need to deal with it because some commentators suggest that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I do not agree with that suggestion. <clears throat> and you may ask, why don't I agree or why don't I think this angel is Christ? Try to read my mind. Why don't I think that this angel is Christ? Okay, very good. Notice what the text says. <clears throat> he is another angel. Another angel of what group? He's another angel of the group of seven angels who stand before God. So, <clears throat> he is a member of the same genus as the angels in verse 2. Distinguished <clears throat> from those seven, but nonetheless a member of the same genus angel. And the angels are blank. Fill in the blank. 
They are created beings. They are creatures. And Jesus Christ is? Who is Jesus Christ? He is the, 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 it's true, but in relationship to the Father, he is, he is the Son of God. And is the Son of God a creature? No, he is not a creature. So, he is the second person of the uncreated, eternal, self-existent, triune deity. <clears throat> so this angel, a creature, is not the Christ, the Son of God, a non-creature. Now that I've satisfied you on that point, or trust you, I trust I have, <clears throat> what is his role? What is this angel in verse 3? What is his role? All right, well, notice. He has a twofold role. First, he is to add to the prayers of the saints much incense out of his hand, verse 4. Second, he is to fill a censer with fire. Notice, he is not to fill that censer with incense. He is to fill the censer with fire and cast it upon the earth, verse 5. Now let me expand a little bit on that twofold role of this angelic, this ministering angel. First, the incense that he adds or gives to the prayers of the saints. Saints here, of course, are believers. That action is a symbolic representation of the increasingly sweet savor, excuse me, sweet savor that those Christian prayers have, as well as the increase of the offering of those prayers directed to the throne of God through the present interadventual age. This action of adding to the prayers of the saints is an indication of how they are increasingly a sweet aroma in the, in the nostrils of God himself and an increase of, of, of number of prayers, an increase of quantity. There are two distinct actions. The one, a savor of the sweet prayer, ascending to God's throne from the lips of sincere believers, and the other activity, very different, namely casting fire upon the earth. But the prayers increase as the sweet aroma increases as the saints pray to the Lord through the years. So, this angel adding incense to the prayers is adding the sweetness of that aroma to the added prayers of the saints as they continue to pray through the ages. Even today, that the prayers of the saints is a sweet savor to God. So this is a symbolic representation of how that sweet aroma of our prayers as Christians comes up before the throne of God and is an increasing quantity of sweetness or incense before his throne of grace. Now, the second action here, I want to expand just for a moment on that second role. He fills the censer that he holds with fire from the altar and casts fire on the earth. Two distinct actions. 
the one a savor of sweet prayer ascending to God from the lips of sincere believers, the other an action very different, taking the fire of God's wrath and casting it upon the earth to the accompaniment of thunderclaps, lightning bolts, and earthquake tremors. The first action is a manifestation of blessing by way of the prayers of Christians. The second action is a demonstration of the wrath and curse of God upon the sinful created order. Blessing and cursing symbolized in the two distinct acts of the ministering angel. Once again, as this apocalypse has revealed before, the blessing and cursing active in this present age that we live in, the interadventual period, is marked by the sweet aroma of God's blessing and the fiery display of his curse and judgment. All right, the trumpets now are prepared to be sounded. Seven trumpet blasts sounding warnings, warnings to the world between the advents, warnings of present and final judgment. The unbelieving world receives the trumpet calls of warning. Present judgment portends final judgment. Or as Augustine said, I think I've quoted it before, there's just enough judgment in this world for unbelieving mankind to realize there's a final judgment coming in the world to come. There's a display of God's wrath against sin and the curse in these temporal judgments, a display which foretells that divine wrath is coming in a final judgment. Notice that in each instance of the sounding of the first four trumpets, verse 7, verse 8, verse 10, verse 12, two-thirds of the earth is unaffected, while in each case, one-third of the earth, sea, and sky is affected. In other words, these are partial warnings. They are not consummate, final, or or ultimate warnings. And they have the function of alerting the unbelieving world to the finality of what is yet to come. So this reinforces the fact that these trumpets reveal calamities that occur over and over in the period of history in which we have been living in since the resurrection and ascension of Christ up to the day of his final and consummate return. There's a slight qualification I want to make to that generalization, but I'll specify that as we go on and look at the details of these four trumpets in this ninth chapter. In other words, in general, we're repeating what we've seen in the first four seals of chapter 6. But here, we're having a kind of imagery, which although it is similar, is, is different in certain features. So it's the same basic pattern, but different aspects of that pattern. All right, what about the first trumpet? The first trumpet calls forth fire and hail, hail and fire bringing bloody death to the earth. This fire and hail strikes the food-producing grass and trees of the earth, causing death from famine 
and starvation. That's an echo of the curse brought by the black horse of chapter 6, verse 5 and following. Firestorms, which bring death and destruction, are a present reminder of the fire yet to come when the earth will be dissolved in an intense and final heat. Through these natural events, God calls the unbelieving world to repent and come to him for salvation so to escape the ultimate eschatological fire of the final judgment. Each of these calamities is a historical witness to the final calamity of the final judgment of the world. We should be sobered by these ourselves even as Christian believers. We should remember that God, through these natural catastrophes, is giving an alarm call, a wake-up call to the unbelieving world and reminding them that there is a, a wrath which is coming more terrible than what they're experiencing even in these natural catastrophes. In other words, even in this common grace demonstration of God's uh, providential uh, wrath and mercy, <clears throat> there is this reflex in which he is crying out as these trumpets sound and cry out with the blast of the trumpet, come to me, listen, listen, listen to my word, listen to the voice of my servants, listen to my son, listen to the, the, to the only voice which can save you from something more terrible than earthquake, uh, firestorm sweeping over a community, uh, <clears throat> hurricane, tornado, etc. They're sobering, sobering realities because in many cases they're absolutely final judgments, as you know. People instantaneously brought to death, quickly, right to the gate of heaven or hell, as the case may be. Now, the second trumpet describes a fiery mountain cast into the sea, very similar to fiery volcanoes erupting with red-hot lava, which falls into the sea, destroying ships and marine animals in this case, but fiery volcano blasts, which are a reminder of heaven's summons to flee the greater fiery blasts of wrath to come. Who of us does not remember Mount St. Helens and the fury of that eruption? and how it turned the sky virtually pitch black. And who of us doesn't remember Kilauea, even last summer, with those hot streams, hot rivers of lava flowing, flowing down the sides of the mountain towards the Pacific Ocean. Other fiery volcano, volcanoes of our present generation are common grace invitations to seek the special grace of the Lord of creation so as to take refuge in the Lord of the new creation, Christ Jesus. I mean, have you been to Mount St. Helens and seen the movie or you have a copy of the video of the movie of that eruption and you, if you drive up that, that, uh, that mountain uh, to the observation point and you see the, even the remainders of the blasts of that ash and that uh, gas that just stripped the trees and left them bare poles like teepee poles. You, <clears throat> you're amazed at the force of it, and yet you're awed and overwhelmed by the reality of it. 
this book of Revelation is giving you a small picture of what is yet to come for this created order. It will be far more furious than even Mount St. Helens or Kilauea or any other volcano on the face of this earth. And that brings us to the third trumpet. The third trumpet announces the falling of a great star. This great star burning like a torch as it plummets through Earth's atmosphere. It too is destructive and has the name of a bitter herb. A bitter herb which is called wormwood. You can even buy it on the internet. This word occurs in the Bible, particularly in the book of Jeremiah and his companion work, the book of Lamentations. But the name Wormwood may be more familiar to us as Christians who have read C.S. Lewis and his famous Screwtape Letters. In that book of correspondence between Screwtape, who is a senior demon in hell, and his nephew, Wormwood, who is an inexperienced demon on earth, the two plot the damnation of the so-called patient, the man who eventually becomes a professing Christian. The Screwtape Letters is a book of satire. It is a satirical examination of the machinations of the demon characters machinations which are foiled by the enemy. The enemy is God. Foiled by the enemy, for God graciously receives the patient into heaven when he is killed in a World War II air raid, which would be appropriate to the era in which Lewis wrote the book. German air raids over London and Britain in the Second World War. If you don't know the screw tape letters, I'd encourage you to seek them out. They're interesting. They're not always as perceptible as they might be. Uh, he could have made some of the uh, implications a lot clearer. But nonetheless, it is a very clever look at the, <clears throat> the machinery of hell in action, so to speak. Here in Revelation 8, 10 to 11... Wormwood is not a demon. Wormwood is the bitter judgment itself upon the water systems of the earth, bringing death to one-third of the earth's population. This star is described as a falling meteor would be described. But it is more than meteor showers which constantly bombard our atmosphere. This meteor or this star is a huge solitary star which our atmosphere is unable to burn up. We're protected from the meteor showers by the character of the atmosphere that God has placed around uh, <clears throat> the earth, but this star penetrates it and cannot be dissolved before it crashes onto the world. As such, it seems to me to be a future or a has-not-yet-occurred vision or image. The trumpet is sounding something that is particularly and specifically not present interadventually, 
but future cosmic, consummately. Now, there are others who believe that it is a symbol of the bitter curses which fall from the heavens, poisoning rivers and fresh water streams, for example, volcanic ash or even atomic radiation, polluting spring and river water. I'm more persuaded that this this, uh, falling star is so specifically unique that it cannot be described by any falling stars or meteor showers of our experience or the experience of normal history between the first and second coming. Any questions or comments? Yes. He is, by that designation, indicating that these are not final, complete destructions. That is, two-thirds of the earth is preserved to continue its historical experience. It's, it's destroyed, but it's an ongoing thing. So that... Uh, that first trumpet, which destroys the uh, grass of the earth, no, yes, the first trumpet, it's the parts of the earth is burned up, volcanic or firestorms, third of the trees are burned up, same thing, volcanic or firestorms, green grass is burned up, same thing, uh, not all of the green grass, just a third of it. I'm sorry, all the green grass was burned up, so I, I take that back. Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, the all there with the green grass being burned up would be the, the re- reaction after the fact. But this is something that keeps going on and on throughout history. Anything else? Yes, Kay? Yeah, at the beginning, I, I might have missed this. Did you comment on the half hour, about half an hour? <laughs> no, no, you didn't miss it. I didn't comment on it. <laughs> but... Thank you for bringing it up. Now I will comment on it. Uh, <clears throat> the half hour is a short period of time. So in comparison with the other time signals in the, in the book, it's a brief time of silence. Uh, now, not literally 30 minutes, so I don't think there's any way we can measure it exactly, but in relationship to other time periods, it's very short. So this hushed silence is is short-lived, but it is it is fervent and it is poignant in its quietness. I just thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah, about a half an hour. I, I kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> that would be enough interruption in our praise and thanksgiving to <laughs> the vocalizing and the sounding forth of that praise and thanksgiving to get back to that which we delight in, which is to praise our Lord in glory. So, yes, it's a short time, but for Kay, 30 minutes would be sufficient. (laughs) Then she can start singing again. I think we would all agree that we would be delighted to join her in that that, uh, short interval. All right, now... um, 
Well, let's uh, let's we we reached a bit of a a break here, so let's take the break, and uh, we'll go on with the fourth trumpet after you've had a chance to stretch your legs and take some refreshment. Now we have come to the fourth trumpet blast, which is described in verse twelve. This is the announcement of a curse on the heavenly light bearers, sun, moon, and stars, reduced by one-third of their illuminating powers so as to darken the earth by the same proportion, day and night, a third of the earth darkened. Now, as is the case with the third trumpet, in this instance, it seems to me that this is a unique curse delayed to the future, since this does not seem to match any present interadventual phenomena, nor any phenomena down through history that we're aware of. Others may again suggest that these are images similar to eclipses and other blackenings of the heavenly lights thus portend the reversal in function of the sun, moon, and stars. Darkness instead of light provisionally, now, anticipating finally darkness instead of light, eschatologically not yet. Now, while I recognize the possibility of the symbolism there, I don't think it satisfies the completeness or thoroughness of the image which is projected there in verse 12. This is those heavenly light bearers being struck with darkness and a third of the day and night being struck the same way. We've never had that coalesce itself together in in one instance. I'm not aware of any historical occurrence uh, all the way back to the creating of the world in which that occurs. So that's one reason I think that this is unique and delayed to its own unique time of occurrence in the future, very close to the consummation of the history of the universe. Now, let me pause for a moment to assess these first four trumpets. We find images in what trumpets one and two bring about, images of calamity, familiar to us and to all of history between the first and second coming of Christ. Fire, hailstones, bloody death, as well as volcanic eruptions, spewing ash and lava into the sea. We're familiar with these images. We're familiar with these narratives. We've heard stories. We've read stories, even historical (coughs) eruptions like Mount Etna, and the island of Sicily back in the first century. But the images of trumpets three and four are singular. At least that's my position. These are unique, even peculiarly supernatural. It's another part of their uniqueness. They're uniquely supernatural. They're signs of the very end of history, not signs of the interim of history. And by interim, I mean the time between the advents of Christ. Here, trumpets three and four seem to me to signal the last advent 
of our Lord and the final, indeed, supernatural phenomena of that cosmic expression of eschatological judgment. There are going to be supernatural signs and wonders which accompany Jesus' coming in glory. And these two trumpets, I think, are trumpets three and four, are announcing elements of that supernatural signing wonder. The uniqueness and supernatural quality of these phenomena of trumpets three and four is epexegetical of the uniqueness and supernatural quality of our Lord's return in judgment and glory. In other words, because they are unique, they meet, they match the uniqueness of Christ coming in glory itself. So they're, you might call harbingers of it or announcers of it, or they're going hand in hand with it. Now that is my opinion. And of course, my opinion is not infallible. So the uh, symbolic treatment of those uh, uh, two trumpets, three and four, is also uh, held and has a a bit of uh, plausibility to it. Now, turning to a different tack, some scholars have compared the curses of these first four trumpets to the plagues that God visited on Egypt in the days of Israelite bondage. This, in fact, is a very popular treatment of these four trumpet curses. For example, the first trumpet, with its hail and fire, recalls the seventh plague in Exodus 9, 22 to 25, when fire and hailstones thundered down from heaven upon the Egyptians, an event which is even uh, made into poetry by the 106th Psalm. Trumpets 2 and 3 featured blights upon the water resources of the earth, the sea, rivers, and the springs. And they remind us of the first Egyptian plague, the turning of the water of the Nile into blood. Fourth trumpet, with its curse of darkness, is alleged to correspond with the ninth plague of Exodus 10, 21 to 23, when darkness, even thick darkness, Darkness which might be felt entombed the land of Egypt, though in the land of Goshen, the Israelites had light. Now, we often skip over that ninth plague and that description of that darkness because the darkness is enough of an image to get our attention. But notice what the text says. Darkness which might be felt. Pause to imagine what that would be like. Darkness being felt. Darkness weighing down upon the Egyptians as if that darkness had matter and energy and force to it. Wrapping you like a shroud portending black death itself. The description of that supernatural miracle makes one shudder. Even darkness which might be felt. That's a dimension that we don't think very much about at all. And yet, it was poured out upon the Egyptians. 
How do you feel darkness? A darkness which is heavy enough for you to feel it. Yes, shudder you may at the very thought of it. All right, so it's a peculiarly interesting image and particularly dramatic in its force. But the suggestion that these trumpet curses, first four trumpets, are similar to the plagues of Egypt. Uh, This is my day to be unconvinced. Once again, I am unconvinced of the suggestion of the interpreters here for a basic reason and then for particular reasons. Uh, Why stop with the particular three uh, plagues of Egypt? At any rate, the trumpets are declaring curses portending condemnation, final condemnation. The plagues in Egypt are declaring blessings to Israel and portending their redemption. There's not a redemptive aspect here in the sounding of these trumpets. Because even as chapter 9 indicates, the unbelieving world will not repent. They will refuse. The only redemptive aspect to it is Christians who recognize the significance of it and and are thankful that they've been spared the wrath to come through the grace and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the plagues in Egypt, although they have a damning reflection upon Egyptian unbelief, are not are redemptive in the sense that they are drawing the children of Israel out of that condemnation or out of that bondage. We are told in verse 21 of Revelation 9, what I just mentioned as an aside, that the call and invitation of these trumpets, not only the first four, but all seven of the trumpets, as we'll see when we cover the other three, this invitation is refused. It is rejected. Unbelievers refuse to repent. So the plagues of Egypt are redemptive historical signs to Israel. They are saved by the grace of God. But the trumpet blasts of Revelation are universal curses to the ungodly those who reject the grace of God unto redemption. The function here is completely condemnatory, completely uh, damnatory. It's completely cursing. There's no blessing behind it at all. So that's one of the reasons I don't think we look to the Exodus uh, plagues in order to Uh, explain why this imagery is here. Of course, the liberals will use this imagery to prove that it's been borrowed from the book of Exodus. And although there are similarities, I don't think it's been borrowed from the book of Exodus at all. I think it's unique to the drama of the finality of of the judgment of the world, which is coming upon us eventually. For all mankind eventually. Now, let us pause to reflect on the force of some of these calamities sounded forth by the four trumpets. The mighty storm of fiery hailstones, the fiery eruptions of the mountain which dissolves in the sea, 
the fiery fury of a burning star which is not consumed, the darkening of the sun, moon, and stars in a way which is unprecedented. Each of these underscores the impotence of mankind. Mankind has no power to prevent these mighty acts of God. Before God's omnipotence, we are reminded of our own impotence, our weakness, our powerlessness in the face of his almighty power. Thus, by these trumpets, the omnipotent God calls sinners, the unrepentant, to himself. You are without power to endure in the day of my fierce anger, God, God is saying. The fiery storms of hail and volcanic mountains and flaming meteors, the poisoned wells bringing death, the darkened heavens, these all display my power calling you to find refuge in me, in my power to redeem you against the terrible day of the Lord. And going on, not only are you without power in the face of these omnipotent signs of my power, you are not able to resist them or to find the ability to escape them. You are unable, you are totally unable to save yourselves from my great ability to bring description, destruction rather upon the earth. Where is your ability in the face of a hurricane? What ability, let alone what power, do you have to escape its horror? Where is your ability in the face of a tornado? How are you able to resist the churning winds of such a, of such a phenomenon? Where is your ability in the face of a tsunami? How do you resist 60-foot-high waves? pounding at you and carrying you out into the depths of the ocean. Are you able to resist that? Where is your ability when a firestorm sweeps over your community and in seconds, if not minutes, you're burned to ashes? Where's your able to, where's your ability to evade, resist, or escape it? You have no ability in such circumstances. You have no natural ability or force to stop these displays of my, says the Lord, my omnipotent power and my plenary, my full ability and capacity. You have no. You are by nature unable. You are by nature impotent against my agents of judgment. So my trumpet call to you is to come to me through my Son, Jesus Christ, by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit is able to make you able. The Holy Spirit is able to make you able. He is able to wrap you in the life of Christ, against which there is no power in heaven or hell to destroy you. You see your impotence in these images Come to my omnipotence through the cross and resurrection of my beloved son. 
You see, your inability in these images come to my ability by the spirit of the dying and rising Christ. He will make you able in the day of my power. And you will be saved. You will be saved from all the portents of the wrath to come, temporal and consummately final. There is where the message of the seven trumpets drives you. May it please God it would drive more of the unbelieving world to that precious fountain. Finally, in conclusion, verse 13. Verse 13 is a transition or intermission, pausing the action of the seven trumpets by a different voice. You notice we have the voice of an eagle or a vulture, as some scholars translate the Greek text. The voice or call of an eagle. In the Old Testament, the eagle is the cry, the cry of the eagle is the cry of approaching judgment, oftentimes in the prophets. And a vulture, the cry of the vulture is the cry of approaching death. Either translation satisfies the imagery of the trumpets. But this call from the eagle or the vulture announces three woes. Woe, woe, and woe. These woes correspond to the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets. The sounding of these trumpets, that is five, six, and seven, will take us up to the end of chapter 11 and the conclusion, chapter 11, being the conclusion of the first half of the whole book of Revelation. The first two of these woes symbolize judgments more severe than the previous ones of the four trumpets. The seventh trumpet sounds the final establishment of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and his eternal reign in his consummate kingdom of light and life and everlasting glory. It is significant that these seven trumpet sounds take us to the end of half of the book of Revelation. For with chapter 12, we begin part two of the book with a different kind of narrative, essentially focusing on the same issues, but a different kind of narrative. All right, let me suggest that trumpets one and two are interadventual curses. Trumpets three and four are mere near consummate curses, near to the consummation of the age. Trumpets five and six are also like three and four, only they're more severe. They're more detailed. They are near consummation curses. We are therefore experiencing a kind of crescendo, an incremental crescendo of trumpet blasts, which are dramatizing and symbolizing the terrors of the final judgment and the ultimate clash between God and Satan, whom we will meet in chapter 9. Apollyon, the demon of the deep pit and abyss. All right, so my paradigm here is to suggest that the first two trumpets are present interadventual. Trumpets three and four 
are more near the consummation itself, the actual final end of the cosmos. Five and six, which are coming up, are also near that consummate end, but they're far more detailed in their description than than three and four are. So we've got this kind of incremental crescendo or increasing of the imagery and the drama which is associated with how these curses are poured out. And that leaves you expecting the fifth angel of chapter 9 and verse 1 indicates he's about to sound, but not until next week. Any questions that you may have on the first four trumpets? If your unbelieving friends ever are sober enough to have a discussion with you about uh, suffering in the world and calamities and uh, firestorms, etc., etc., it is useful to suggest to them to think about the fact that these are trumpet calls, these are warnings, these are invitations to consider seriously the issues of life and death. For life and death came very quickly in all of these calamities where they struck, even in this past year in our history, in our country. So that certainty is as certain as death even, so to speak, sleeping away in your bed or whatever. So this is an opportunity to soberly consider these events, these calamities, as an invitation to consider the alternative, which is the mercy and wonderful grace of God and Jesus Christ calling you to escape a final calamity, a final judgment. Yes, Mary. There are two major actors in the history of redemption depicted as stars. Why do you not think either one of them could be this star? <coughs> what two figures are you suggesting? <coughs> Yeah, uh, the imagery of Christ as a bright and morning star is an imagery is a positive image of beauty and attraction. He comes in judgment as well. Yes, he he does, but I don't think that that, in my opinion, the star associated with him there is a star in terms of his redemptive glory, not in terms of his judgmental uh, fury. As far as Satan being a star, he's falling like a star. Uh, from heaven. In other words, he's cast down as a star is cast down into the pit of hell. So that, that's again a negative image, uh, but it, it's not, he, he is not a, a star like uh, a, a star in the, in the heavens. It's, it's, he's, he, his fall is similar to his falling star, but he is not himself a star. A, a, a star, in fact, a, a star a in that regard, in my opinion. Any other questions? Which elicit my opinion for good or ill. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are humbled. In fact, we shut our mouths in silence when we contemplate the sounds of these trumpets and what they bring forth. 
and whether we are exactly correct in our interpretation of them with specifics, nonetheless, in general, we get the picture. It is the picture of the curse which continues to hang over the created world, curse which will bring final destruction to this cosmos. That is not peculiar to the book of Revelation, although the imagery here is peculiar to Revelation, or we have read in other places of scripture about the certainty of the final climax of history in the judgment of the last day. Father, you have preserved your people from experiencing the horror of that day because you have poured out that wrath and curse and judgment upon your son in their place. We count it a great mercy and we are thankful for the grace that Christ Jesus has given to us in taking our place in enduring the wrath to come. So bless us and cheer our hearts with that wonderful message and allow us in your good providence to share it with those who will hear, to understand that these warnings of natural calamities and natural disasters are God's late wake-up call for them to consider the mercy of Christ Jesus and the saving grace that takes us out of all calamities and natural destructions. Thank you, O Lord, for keeping us in the peace which passes all understanding. We pray your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen.